Hello everyone, it's April 26th, 2022. So the Peregrine Lander is making real progress. We might see it on the moon before the end of the year. Then we talk to Daniel Bach, CEO of Morpheus Space, where they make tiny thrusters that can do some amazing things. But let's start with the first stage of the show and lift off. The Tower. Welcome to episode 356 of the Open Home Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Welcome back, Dennis. How was uh, NASA? It was good. It was fun, actually. I mean, uh, a lot of the time was uh, getting tours of like local facilities and things like that. Oh, cool. Yeah, so basically three people from NASA came and um, uh, a few others just joined via Zoom. But um yeah, and they basically just were doing a check on the health of the grant, essentially. So the the PI, he, he had to do most of the work, like him and the uh, project manager to like organize everything. But essentially, like day one was a lot of presentations about, you know, the different facets of the grant, you know, the education part, the research part, statistics on, you know, the student placement, things like that. And then, uh, but the second and third day were just all tours, essentially. <laughs> what facilities did you go to? There, there was a bunch of um, ones at the UVA campus that were, were all cool in different ways, but I'd been to before um, for, you know, different planetary scientists, labs, and things like that. But the coolest was uh, getting to see the OSIRIS-REx um, Science Ooh. Operations Command. And it's a building that's off campus, and it's actually very close to where my office is on my college campus. And so I walked by that or jogged past that building a bunch of times. It has a huge um, mural of uh, hmm. uh, the Phoenix lander painted on the side. Oh. So that's apparently where they had done the Phoenix operations. But yeah, I, I'd never gone inside. I, I didn't know anything about this building. And it, and actually the grant, um, the, the program is called Asteroids. Uh, we're moving into, that, into the actual cubicles that the OSIRIS-REx science team uh, had used. And so, yeah. We're taking over. Peregrine is preparing for flight, so the Peregrine lander is getting pretty close, huh? I mean, I don't know. Well, we're looking at launch for later this year, I believe, yeah, on a Q4. Vulcan, depending on whether or not the Vulcan's ready. I mean, that's a whole other topic. Um, I right. don't know what your thoughts are on that, but <laughs> I guess here we're mostly going to be talking about Peregrine. But I mean, yeah, yeah, we're mostly talking about Peregrine, but like the fact that it's a cool lander that's flying on the first flight of a cool rocket, I think is just serendipitous and wonderful. I don't know when the, la when the last time we really talked about Vulcan and what the current status is, because we just, you know, haven't gotten around to it. But uh, that would be an interesting thing to know, because, you know, they've had some, they've had some issues especially with their engines, so we don't know where that sits at the moment. Yeah, we hadn't talked about it on the show, but I think I'd seen somebody on Twitter recently refer to the fact that they are currently slated for, I think, a quarter four of this year, mm -hmm. which that person mm -hmm. was saying, typically when a rocket launch company says that, they're basically yeah. going to launch early next year. <laughs> right, so uh, the, first, the first Vulcan Centaur... Carrying Peregrine. Peregrine is presumably going to be the first Clips lander, commercial lunar payload services. They're kind of in a, uh, in a race with... Uh, oh, it's the um, Nova C lander, right? Right. Right, yeah. Intuitive Machines Nova C, which we talked about last week um, when we were talking about uh, Artemis rovers. So they're, they're in a little bit of a race. It looks like um, Astrobotic is going to win the race, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. The reason that we're talking about them is because they did um, uh, like an unveiling this week, which is really neat. 
um, they had uh, a very glitchy live stream in which somebody's standing at a podium, uh, actually a series of people are standing at a podium in front of uh, a big wall of windows that looks into their uh, assembly bay, I'm assuming is is what they call it. And uh, they did this big reveal where they rolled up a, a curtain and and showed off the flight article. Um, we've seen mock-ups and engineering articles in the past, and and I don't know if we've ever seen this one before, but I, I, I don't think so. And it's like, this thing is going to the moon, and it's right there behind some glass. And it just, it's such a cool moment when, when space companies can do that. Uh, so I was just looking up the... Uh... Um, the launch schedule for uh, Intuitive Machines' uh, first mission, their Nova Sea Lander, and IM-1. And that's actually slated for this summer, which is only a couple months away. <laughs> yeah, it's gone back and forth, though. So right. I, I, I think it's still a, a good race, and I would be shocked if IM-1 flew this summer, but who knows? I agree. Like, I agree. So uh, we've talked about Peregrine in the past. Uh, there's not too much new to say about it but i think it's uh i think it's good to cite some uh some numbers to to help put this thing in context uh it has a diameter of uh two and a half meters and has a payload capacity of 265 kilograms uh to the lunar surface um it has uh, a bunch of um rcs thrusters i think four clusters around the perimeter um which are the thrusters that you can see then it also has uh five main engines uh built by frontier aerospace and i believe those are tucked into the skirt on the bottom uh both propulsion systems use the same type of propellant uh, it's mon 25 and monomethyl hydrazine i i'm not sure if they draw from the same tanks or they if they have dedicated tanks uh for the rcs system but it, you know at, at least it's the same uh, the same propellant and Peregrine is is kind of sad in that it doesn't have any heaters on board. So it is built for, you know, a primary mission of like a week. Um, and it's unlikely to survive lunar winter. Um, it's just like, oh, you, you poor lander, you made it all the way. And then and then you froze. <laughs> um, but th- but that's OK. It's it's not there to do long-term science and there, there will be other landers that do long-term science. This just isn't one of them. The vehicle is not complete yet. If you, if you look at the, uh, the, the clean room photos, you can really, it's very obvious that there are pieces missing. So specifically it doesn't have its few, uh, it's solar panels. Um, it has, I believe two, it has two tanks on board. I think those are the oxidizer tanks and it's waiting for its fuel tanks. Um, it doesn't have its payload decks and there's actually a good photo. Um, I'll have to track down and, and try and get in the show notes that just shows the, the payload decks, which are in the clean room. At least one of them is in the clean room and they, they have some payloads integrated. I don't believe all their payloads are integrated, but it's, it's really nice. They get to work on these decks off of the vehicle and then go install them later. Uh, is the way it, it, it appears to be. Um, and then, of course, none of the engines are integrated either. And you can see uh, just in the photos, the RCS thrusters are, are missing and you can't see the main engines, uh, but but they indeed are, are also missing. This mission was originally called uh, Mission One. And I, 
I don't know what its name is anymore. I don't think it has a name. Um, it was named Mission One after one of its payloads, um, which is, oh, uh, Asagumo, um, the rover. Uh, it's from a UK company that I, I guess is called Lunar Mission One. I, I think we talked about, I think we talked about this rover in the past, but, but anyway, that got canceled. So that's not flying. And so I don't know what the, <laughs> what this mission is called anymore, but there are, uh, there are four rovers that are going to fly. Originally there were going to be six, but two got canceled, uh, from, one from the U.S., one from the U.K., one from Chile, one from Japan, one from Mexico, and one from Hungary. And uh, the U.K.'s uh, Asagumo rover uh, was canceled, and then Mexico's rover was canceled. And I'm actually really bummed about the the Mexican rover because it's not just a rover. It's like a bunch of rovers. And honestly, they look like nothing so much as the largest Lego Technic gear or uh, uh, Technic wheel with uh, some uh, chips glued to the side and then a couple of additional wheels glued to the other side. Uh, they're just these little tiny rovers. And I guess, I guess what they do is pop up and, and rotate around, uh, the, the major diameter and they can stop and they just flop one way or the other. And maybe they hop to get, I don't know what the deal is, but they look really cool. So four rovers, uh, eight, like capital I instruments, like eight, eight major instruments, um, which include, uh, Astrobotics TRN package, uh, terrain relative navigation. They're counting that as, as one of the eight instruments. There's also a data relay package from Surrey. And, uh, I don't know if that's going to be the main, um, the main comms package or, or if, uh, Astrobotic has their own hardware on board. What's really funny is one of the payloads that Wikipedia cites is a 3D printer from a company called Aeon 3D. And they, they actually cite the, the model. It's the M2 plus, I believe. Uh, and I was like, Oh, you know, that's, that's kind of cool to send a 3D printer to the moon. Like I, I don't know why you wouldn't just send it to low earth orbit. I don't know why, it, why it really matters that it's on the moon other than the gravity, but like, okay, cool. No, no, no. I looked it up and, uh, <laughs> the M2 plus is not a desktop 3D printer or a mini 3D printer. It's a, it's a giant high temperature. Uh, 3D printer for printing thermoplastics. And if you imagine like a big double door fridge, uh, it's like half the height of that and all of the footprint. It's huge. There's, oh my this thing is not flying <laughs> on this rover. What, what's actually flying is 3D printed parts. Some of the structural components, uh, were printed by Aeon 3D, which is, uh, yeah, I'm all, I'm all for it. Um, and then, like I said, there are a bunch of time capsules. The, the biggest headline one is the DHL moon box. I remember when that was, was first announced, they had like this big advertising campaign for, for DHL going to the moon. So this perhaps unnamed Peregrine mission is going to, uh, Lacus Mortis, which is a, a plateau. Uh, at 44 north, 25 east, 44 degrees north, 25 degrees east. Um, so that's uh, northeast of uh, Mare uh, Serenitatis, uh, the Sea of Serenity, the Sea of Serenity, not the Sea of Tranquility, because mm-hmm. that's Tranquilitatis. Yeah. So the the Sea of Serenity, which is, I mean, when you think about the Mares, like it's more or less the one that's farthest up and the one that's farthest to the right. And then this is just a little bit farther north and farther right. And uh, Lacus Mortis is actually a, a really 
interesting place to go. Uh, while it's flat, it has a giant impact crater in the middle. Um, but it also has um, some lava domes on one side and, and some interesting looking uh, uh, geography. So, yeah, like obviously they're not going to be moving around and looking at anything. Maybe some of the rovers uh, can can get us a little closer to something of interest, but I imagine their range is going to be pretty darn limited. But yeah, that's that's where this thing is going. It does look like a lot of it is just a parking lot. So yeah, it would be a nice, easy, successful landing. Exactly. That's that's what you want when you're when you. <laughs> near landing. Okay, so the thing doesn't have heaters on board. Um, and part of the reason that that's okay is because this is more of a pathfinder. Uh, Astrobotic, I believe, initially announced their Griffin lander and then said, oh, nope, we're going to do Peregrine now. We'll do Griffin later. And the reason that's kind of weird is because Griffin is actually bigger than Peregrine. Uh, so it's the larger successor, but it's actually older. Um, and let me tell you, this this thing really is bigger. It's uh, almost five meters in diameter, and it has a 5,000 kilogram payload to the surface. The Griffin mission is going to be going to a South Pole area somewhere, and it is going to have the Viper lander on board, which is a NASA a NASA rover, I believe. I I can't remember. I, I saw the, the name Viper Rover and I went, oh yeah, I know what that is. And only now I'm just realizing that actually, no, I, I can't recall most of those details. But um, some of the instruments that are going to be flown on Viper are also being flown uh, on Peregrine. So this really is sort of a, a forward looking mission. And uh, yeah, hopefully it'll either be a good way to kick off clips or a good second step to establish clips on the moon. All right, so let's do the usual three short and sweets this week. And Dennis, what's the first one? First up, Tedris to be replaced. Six companies have won awards from NASA to demonstrate services that could lead to the replacement of NASA's tracking and data relay satellites. SpaceX and Amazon's Kuiper Government Solutions, if selected, would use low-Earth orbit constellations that provide coverage via optical links. Inmarsat and Viasat would use more traditional geo solutions, and SES Government Solutions and Telesat US would use a mix of geo and medium Earth orbit satellites. These new constellations would not necessarily be backward compatible with Tedris, as NASA would be using them for future missions, while Tedris-dependent ones are gradually phased out until Tedris is no longer required. And then next up, Starlink books a flight. Jet service provider JSX has signed a deal with SpaceX that will make it the first air carrier to offer free Wi-Fi on its flights via Starlink. This service will be offered on up to 100 of GSX's 30-seat Embraer jets. The jets will use a type of terminal developed specifically for the aviation market that is currently in testing. The announcement of this deal has already caused a drop in market shares for Viasat and GoGo, businesses that currently provide in-flight Wi-Fi services. SpaceX is also seeking to provide Starlink services to ocean-going vessels and motor vehicles with a goal of significant expansion beyond fixed home services. And finally, bad weather holds up for Crew 4. Windy weather in Florida has led to the delay of the returning AX-1 crew to Earth. This, in turn, has led to Crew 4 being delayed for launch. Both missions would need to use the same docking port aboard ISS. Additionally, NASA and SpaceX require 48 hours between the landing of AX-1 and the launch of Crew 4 in order to prepare for launch and stage recovery assets for both crews. As of right now, the departure of the Axiom crew is scheduled for Sunday evening, and Splashdown should take place at 1 p.m. EST on Monday. 
This would put the earliest possible launch for Crew-4 at Wednesday afternoon, with backup launch opportunities on Thursday. Welcome to the interview segment. Today, we have Daniel Bach, the CEO and co-founder of Morpheus Space. Hi, Daniel. How's it going? Hi, Ben. Uh, I'm doing very well. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm doing better now that I'm uh, about getting ready to, to talk about uh, engine technology. <laughs> it's <always laughs> the best. Um, so could you give us a, a quick introduction to uh, Morpheus? Uh, your role at Morpheus, and uh, maybe a little bit about how you got there. Yes, sure. Uh, so I'm the CEO and co-founder of Morpheus Space, and our big aim is basically to uh, provide satellite mobility, so in-space mobility, to everyone. So making it as simple as possible to move around in space and uh, yeah, not depending on if you're a space expert, and we have the, the overall goal to make space a commodity so that we um, that other industries can uh, use space uh, like uh, the internet is used by, by a lot of different companies nowadays. Um, we want to do the same for for in-space mobility especially and also face uh, yeah, high numbers of satellites in the future and also uh, provide a sustainable future of, of our uh, near of orbits and how did how did Morpheus Space get started? So that's that's a quite interesting story. So um, I was always fascinated by space, and for me it was uh, very clear since my childhood actually uh, that I wanted to to be uh, yeah working in in the space industry. Um, so for me it was quite clear to space uh, aerospace engineering, and uh, this is now almost uh, 15 years ago. And uh, I studied that at the University of Technology in Dresden. And when I arrived there back then, uh, there was actually no professor. And um, we started on uh, to yeah, found a, a student organization, and we were um, um, yeah designing experiments for sounding rockets to study the capillary action in low low gravity. And um, yeah, that that was quite. A, a huge success and came quite handy later on um, to to get to know uh, the capillary action um, in microgravity. So a little, after a little while, there was a new professor coming to the university and he brought with him uh, a new technology, which is called FEEP, Field Emission Electric Propulsion. And I, I was his first student and um, yeah, um, did research now for over 10 years in that topic and became uh, yeah his first student and uh, um, yeah pursued the avenue of, of academia uh, became an assistant professor later on and studied that also in my uh, PhD studies um, and over the time we saw also that there's commercialization of spaces happening and we saw that's a huge market opportunity for us um, so we basically decided in 2018 to um, found Morpheus Space and to leverage my uh, technology I was um, doing science on. And uh, yeah, I basically dropped my PhD and convinced uh, uh, three of my co-founders to join me and do the same. And uh, since 2018, we, we have Morpheus Space as a business and uh, really want to make a difference in, in, in space mobility. So, so FEEP is, is field emission electric propulsion. And does FEEP 
always mean a liquid metal propellant or is that just the I, I guess what makes what makes feep liquid metal and what makes an ion engine some other type of propellant yeah that's that's a very interesting question because uh literature is also not very consistent in that matter mm. so there are different namings uh also and in different regions of the of the world uh different namings are, are applied i think the, the most common one is that feep is really um yeah regarding uh using metal as propellant um so you have also the naming of colloid thrusters or electrospray thrusters and this is more like a, a main topic. Uh, also, liquid salts are, are considered in that topic as propellant. And these technologies have a lot in, in common, uh, but there are also differences. So the field emission electric propulsion, FEEP, uh, is typically using a metal as propellant, but the, the principle is, is very similar. So you're applying an, a high, a strong electric field and you're um, basically using that to um, create a balance between the surface tension of the propellant and and the electrical field and this um, balance uh, creates these so-called taylor cones so these taylor cones are um, also used in yeah electrospray thrusters um, as well as um, on, on feed thrusters uh, but with the only difference that you're not using a a salt, but but a, a metal. We've talked about Taylor cones on the show before, and I think uh, I'm not sure how well we explain them. So could you could you explain what a Taylor cone is for us? Yeah, sure. So if you have a liquid uh, that is um, electrically conductive, and you're applying, uh, or you have that liquid on very sharp tips, um, so on the base structure that can be needles or capillaries itself. And um, you make the, the liquid flow on, on these tips, and then you're applying an electrical field. On these um, base tips, uh, the, the liquid is basically pulled towards uh, the um, other side of the potential field and, and creates a cone. And uh, so a liquid metal cone in, in our case. And this cone gets sharper than, than the base itself. And... Um, the tip of that uh, liquid metal cone is basically then in the order of uh, just a few nanometers and uh, a jet on top of that uh, is created if the uh, electrical field strength is high enough and on, on top of that jet you, you have a, another tip and this uh, tip radius uh, is basically then in the order of angstrom so in mm. the order of uh, the, the diameter of an atom and yeah. this is basically creating such a high local electrical field strength that it is possible that the propellant is ionized um, at, in, in, in this process by the tunnel effect. So also quantum mechanics um, come into play at uh, these small dimensions. And uh, for me, it's, it's still magic that this mm -hmm. uh, is actually working. Um, so this um, technology or the, the principle behind that was, I think, discovered in the in the 1960s already for terrestrial ap applications. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's actually used uh, in in space since the 1990s, um, first for uh, charging um, control of spacecraft that are um, yeah interplanetary. 
Um, and um, they are, this technology is basically used since yeah, the 2000s, the first time for, for electric propulsion. So basically use this uh, created ion beam uh, to propel satellites. So, so it's, a, it's actually an ion beam. So you're not getting micro droplets or anything like that. That's just crazy to me. And that's that's basically um, one of the major difference between uh, ionic liquid, so um, um, molten salts, and and using pro um, metallic propellants. Um, we are creating really ions. So um, these out out of that Taylor cone, real metal ions are tunneled out. And they see the, the, the same electrical field and are accelerated in that electrical field uh, towards the outlet, uh, which is the extractor electrode, uh, how we call it. And um, so if you're using it uh, not, uh, if you're using it in the operation uh, um, range, then we have pure ions that are, that are emitted. If you're breaking, you know, a, a mass of, of metal down into individual ions is that evaporation what what is that process D is there a name for it um that's that's also a difficult uh, topic yeah. so also there uh, the the literature is not really consistent uh, some are calling it um, ion evaporation that's true this is a, the term that was used especially in the in the 1960s um, field emission actually is also not a correct term because uh, this is mainly applied if you're ionizing uh, a gas um, or or if you're using it for creating electrons or negative charges um, like in, in uh, field emission um, microscopes so it's i would say it's, it's something in between so uh, it's it's also not really ev evaporation because um, we are not uh, evaporating the metal for this the that's the right term the um, evaporation um, pressure is basically too too high that that cannot mm. uh, be um, but it, it it is more like tunneling out uh, of individual atoms or individual uh, ions basically out of that metal and um, it's not really a gas it's it's really uh, single atoms single uh, ionized atoms that are uh, created in that yeah very strong electrical uh, local field. So when you say tunneling, is this where these quantum effects come into play? Because I'm not sure I understand that. And I know it's difficult to understand anyway, but right. I, um, <laughs> exactly what do you mean by tunneling? Yes, I, I mean the, the quantum's effect. So um, you have certain probability of any material that uh, spontaneously um, an atom is basically decayed into uh, an ion and an electron. And this happens extremely rarely, and um, but we can change that by applying uh, a very electrical, a very strong electrical field. So we are basically uh, dropping the potential barrier um, for this to happen, and also the probability by having such a almost singularity uh, in the in the field strength. So it's really we are basically manipulating the probability uh, of that. Um, randomly occurring um, principle. That, that's, a, that's a really cool point, David, that I didn't really think about. So I guess the, the electrical potential that you have to apply is probably dependent on how thin you can get the tip of that jet. Is that, is that a correct assumption? Yes, that's, that's correct. So um, the field strength is, depends on, on the um, 
potential you're applying, so uh, how much um, voltage basically, and also um, how small your tip is. And so it's volts per meter, and uh, you can either apply extremely high fields on a flat thing, uh, but we also want to have yeah something practically so right. um of course we, we we are also working on making that uh, tip or um yeah basically the the dimension as small as possible so that uh, we don't have to apply such high uh, electrical potentials so i'm i'm assuming that a, a lot of your work is going into this transient structure that you don't really have control over right that this this jet is not something that you can machine so like what i don't want to uh, I don't want to ask you to reveal any, you know, proprietary kind of information, but like, what kind of things do you think about when it comes to crafting that jet? It, does it all come down to the material of the propellant or are there other things that you can do to influence it? Yeah, so it's an interplay of, of many things. Um, so first of all, the tip is basically the liquid uh, metal propellant. And uh, so it's highly dependent, of course, on the propellant itself and uh, on the flow um, um, characteristics of, of that metal. Um, so surface tension uh, plays, for example, an, an important role of, of this uh, material and also how, how you make sure that this um, liquid metallic uh, propellant is also kept at, at the base, uh, so at the needle tips basically, and to make it stable so you don't want to basically let this liquid metal, this tailor, tailor cone uh, implode uh, um, every time, so you want to have a steady state yeah, scenario where you basically always have this, this uh, tailor cone in place and um, make it as, as stable as possible. You can do a lot of research on, on the material science uh, part and, and also the form of the um, electrical field that you are applying um, plays an important role. So you want to increase the field strength at, at, at a very certain point um, and um, to make it as efficient as possible. And yeah, all, all of that comes into play. So without any revealing any proprietary information <laughs> but that's that's basically the uh all, all the things you have to consider so before you had uh, a phrase that you mentioned uh about how you could form uh tailor cones on the tips of capillaries or needles and i, I really want to come back to that in a second but first i thought it would be a good moment to ask you about the terrestrial applications of tailor cones like where did these things come from? Is it just for like coating parts in a metal or something? Yes, that's that's one application. Um, so, for example, one of our co-founders also worked uh, on the terrestrial uh, applications, and he was working, uh, for example, with the Helmholtz uh, Center in, in Dresden, Rosendorf, and they are using um, the same principle basically to inject that in a particles a particle accelerator so oh, wow. to to um yeah use these ion beams and, and make them even more yeah energetic and also focus uh, that beam and then they are basically irri irradiating uh, substrates or so, so other materials and you can crazy can do crazy stuff with that so for example you can induce uh, um, the materials with, with the metal ions so you can uh, work on, on semiconductors, for example, or you can also create uh, nanostructures with that. 
So um, if you have a certain angle um, to your probe, uh, you can create little uh, nano dots on, on, on uh, so little really nano structured uh, uh, surfaces of, of materials. And uh, that, that, that's, for example, yeah, some applications uh, that science is working on at the moment. Do you know who thought to use this for propulsion? Who thought about that? So, as I said, um, this technology was already used um, since the 1990s uh, for charge uh, balancing of, of spacecraft. So we are expelling uh, ions so we, we can basically... Oh. Um, decrease um, the, the potential of the of the spacecraft um, and yeah I'm, I'm not sure who had the idea but yeah. um, so the, the forces are are very low uh, very small um, so that is maybe why it wasn't considered in the past but if you um, have multiple emission sites of course you yeah it's multiplied um, the, the force that you can create and um, if you're focusing on, on getting more ions or a higher current out of, of your system, um, you, you come in, in a range where it makes sense uh, to, to also use it uh, as a propulsion system. So FIP is of course not a technology where you can create extremely high uh, forces like with a chemical uh, propulsion system. Um, but it's comparable to to other electrical propulsion systems if if you're researching that uh, in that direction. Okay, interesting. Okay, cool. So um, to get back to your uh, your engine in particular, you don't use a, a capillary and you don't use a needle exactly, right? You kind of use both at once. Is that correct? I I, I don't want to disclose what we're using actually uh, in in detail. So we we played around with a lot of uh, things in the past. We used capillaries, we used uh, uh, needles, and we used uh, also um, something in between, so porous uh, needles that have basically uh, little capillary channels uh, within a needle, um, so a porous uh, needle. But what we're using at the moment, I, I don't want to disclose. Okay, okay, <laughs> then then let's, let's set aside your current technology because I really am fascinated uh, by your your porous uh, ion source uh, concept and and this is something that you worked on back in Dresden I believe and and that is what that's actually the flown version of your engine I'm assuming used a, a porous needle and you don't have to confirm or deny if you don't want to but could you talk about uh, what this porous needle actually looks like and how it was fabricated because it's really a fascinating structure to me um, yes so um, regarding the the demonstration mission um, we actually used uh, also multiple uh, different designs in our uh, four thrusters on that uh, oh, UWE mission so that was the purpose to see uh, in, yeah real space application uh, what works best um, one was the the, the porous uh, needles and you can yeah imagine it like you have like a like a sponge basically a metallic sponge and the the shape of that sponge is like a needle um, so the needle is just uh, like in, in a pencil, um, the, the graphite in, in your pencil. And um, we are sharpening that needle, mostly, uh, so e either mechanically, but um, that's that's not really um, easy to do. Or you can also do that with um, electrical etching. 
Um, so you are sharpening that um, sponge-like metal um, um, to, to create a very sharp needle. And the, this, this sponge has open um, channels where the, the metal can flow uh, within the needle. So it's protected from the outside and you have uh, also a, a continuous flow uh, of the propellant towards the needle tip. Yeah, it's like, it, it really is crazy. It looks like, a, yeah, it looks like a, like a pointy sponge. So it, it looks like uh, the needle is uh, initially like granules of tungsten that are maybe centered together into a wire and then machined down to a tip and then sharpened using uh, electrochemical etching. and. I don't know much about uh, fabrication techniques or electrochemical etching in particular, but like the first thought I had was like, oh, that's a great technique because all you have to do is lower the needle into your electrochemical bath at an angle and then you rotate it and it'll just etch off the amount that's submerged. But this thing has capillaries all the way through it. Like it wants to soak up any liquid that touches it. Um, and so I was curious how the heck you could use electrochemical etching on a substance that is not, it doesn't have a solid surface. So you can imagine it like you, you're putting uh, these little sponges or, or these capillaries uh, in, into the bath, as you said, and then you're applying also um, a voltage. And uh, of course you need to use the right chemicals for that. And what happens is that actually at the surface of that bath, the, the etching is happening. So you, you tip it into that bath and at the surface, this etching is applied and it's then basically uh, acting like, uh, so under the microscope, it looks like a, a beaver, a beaver has, has bitten <laughs> it up. <laughs> yeah, and and it, it gets uh, thinner and thinner, and then basically uh, the the lower uh, end drops off, and you have uh, uh, only a tip remaining. Oh, that's really interesting. So it's it's actually pretty easy to do that. That's that's cool. I have a fairly basic question. Just conceptually, does it work out that these needles we've been talking about, like one needle is one thruster, or do you string together a bunch of needles to actually come up with one functioning thruster on a spacecraft? Yeah, that, that's also a really great question because um, that is basically the difference uh, between our nanofeep and our multifeep. So um, nanofeep is really just one uh, one emission site and multifeep has a multiple of these, as the name <laughs> indicates. So uh, multifeep uh, uses seven in, in our design and we have seven emission sites that are um, connected to one tank to one reservoir where, where the propellant is stored and we are applying um, to each emission site a different uh, potential so we, we make it uh, controllable so each emission site is uh, controllable um, on its own and with this uh, approach we can basically individually uh, control each emission site within one thruster and uh, this makes it possible to actually do thrust vectoring. So if you if you think about okay, I have uh, one needle or one emission site um, that is um, um, at full force, and the others are at lower force. Uh, the, these uh, yeah, created ion beams um, overlay, and you basically have a different ion beam distribution overall. Dis uh, different ion beam distribution, with, which is not in the center anymore. 
and this this creates a, a not centered um, uh, thrust vector then. And this comes in quite handy to uh, compensate any misalignment uh, between the thruster and the, the center of gravity of the um, satellite. And you can also use that uh, for yeah, basically fly around the corner. So we we, uh, we basically also created a virtual steering wheel with, uh, with the propulsion system <laughs> that uh, yeah, without turning the thruster physically. So it's all controlled uh, electronically and uh, has the advantage of not using any movable parts, which is always pain uh, uh, in in space. Uh, yes. Systems. So I'm seeing in the notes that Ben so graciously provided us that the single engine version has a specific impulse of 3,000 to 8,500 seconds, whereas the cluster has, it looks like it just is like somewhere above 7,000. So can you explain why the difference there, like why you would have a difference in specific impulse? Yes. Um, so the difference within the specific impulse, so you need to know uh, we have a lot of different parameters uh, within the operation of these thrusters. So the specific impulse is basically indicating um, how fuel efficient we are. So how many ions we are creating per uh, gram of propellant or per, per mass. And if you're running it uh, on a propellant optimized uh, operation point, uh, you are more uh, on, on the higher end of the ISP of the specific impulse. Um, but that has also a lower thrust. So it's always a trade-off, either um, the specific impulse is high or uh, the thrust is high. And uh, with multi-feeps or the multi-emission um, uh, thruster, uh, our goal was to really yeah, increase the, the thrust uh, of each unit. And this is why we chose uh, different operation points um, where we are maybe not that propellant efficient, uh, but uh, can generate a higher thrust. And um, mm. so if you compare that to other electric propulsion systems, we are uh, still uh, uh, yeah, much better uh, on the propellant consumption. And we have also the advantage of using a metal, which is also quite dense. So um, the propellant efficiency was never uh, a big issue. So we traded it. Uh, off a little bit uh, for creating higher higher forces, higher thrust. That's really cool. That yeah, you can you can make these single engines, which are are single emission point ish engines, and and they're really tiny. Um, we have a photo of one of them being held in a hand. It's it's truly tiny. I mean, we're talking under you know under a couple of centimeters in length, and then to be able to tune that for just being super low mass. And then to have a bunch of them put together, they get to share a fuel reservoir. And for that, you can get hot, you know, you tune it for the higher thrust. Like that's, that's really a, a powerful aspect of this sort of technology. You know, you're not having to change the size of your engine bell or anything to do that. Yes, exactly. And um, if you, if you're coming back to, to the mechanism of, um, of FEEP, so we are basically ionizing single atoms, um, of course, in a, in a uh, steady current and uh, so you cannot really count them they are uh, yeah extremely high in numbers of individual atoms in that current but that means that we are extremely uh, propellant efficient and this is well, the high number of, of ISP so we, we only need uh, just a few atoms basically uh, to create the thrust and uh, we put all the, the energy we have uh, in accelerating these, these um, ions um, at the speed of, 
up to 100 uh, kilometers per second. So um, to give you an order of, of magnitude. So this makes it possible that our thrusters are so small. And the pictures that you are referring to, uh, I think it's, it's not a heap and multi feet on it. And uh, you have to keep in mind the propellant reservoir is already uh, embedded in that thruster. So we, mm-hmm. we don't need any external uh, tanks or, or whatever. Uh, it's already in embedded in the thruster. And uh, so it was not really a, a difficult choice for us, uh, even if we are using a, a few percent more propellant, uh, it doesn't really matter because we, we have already such a uh, small system. And uh, if you're using a, yeah, just a little bit of more propellant, uh, it's not, not the end of the world. It's, it's much um, more lucrative to, to increase the thrust. It's actually interesting. Um, I, I looked at some of the early development versions and it looks like the control board probably carries more mass than the engine itself does. Like it's, it's really interesting to me that your greatest mass optimizations are going to be in updating, you know, a circuit board rather than actually, you know, taking shavings off of your engine. It's, it's truly crazy. Uh, yes, it is. And, um, this, of course, we, we also realized that. And um, this was why we uh, focused a lot on uh, optimizing our electronics, which was also extremely important for us to um, yeah, test out uh, commercial off-the-shelf off the uh, components, especially in the electronics, um, to also create a, an affordable uh, product, and uh, mm. which makes uh, the business uh, more, more doable. So, yeah, we, we have to talk about your electron generator more. This is... This is really cool. I didn't realize that there were, you know, new, new innovations, new techniques still being worked on. I kind of thought that, you know, uh, our, our current electron guns were just like as good as they're going to get. Are you planning on, on marketing that technology on its own or is this just going to be the special sauce that, that sits in your rocket? Uh, so, so far we don't have any plans to, um, market that on, uh, on other, uh, maybe also on terrestrial market. Uh, so we don't see the demand for that yet. And yeah, of course, on, on the space propulsion uh, industry, we don't want to, to make that available to others because we put a lot of effort in that, um, and which sets us apart, of course. So it, it's not really a, a thing for us to um, yeah, sell these uh, neutralizers in, in, in individually. And maybe they are also not applicable for uh, all of the other uh, or um, some of the other electric propulsion systems. So, for example, if you think about hall thrusters, um, you have already um, gas uh, propellant on board. Um, so you can use that for your hollow cathode, which is uh, another technology. Uh, to create uh, electron uh, sources, but on any any other electric propulsion systems that don't use uh, gases, like the FEEP technology, it's it's really uh, a great technology because uh, you you don't need uh, any additional propellant, and it's also a cold uh, electron source. So the other um, option you would have is a thermal cathode, so something that you heat up extremely. Uh, at an extremely high temperature and then have thermal uh, electron uh, generation and uh, expel that out. So that is uh, what uh, others are doing, uh, but you need to heat up 
uh, your probe uh, over 2000 degrees uh, Celsius uh, to, to make that work and you don't want to have yeah such high temperature on, on board of your satellite and it's also extremely a waste of energy to heat up something on your satellite uh, at, at these high temperatures. And, and then the, the other thing you mentioned in passing was some of the the array configurations that that you're uh, capable of and on your website there's like a there's a photo of like a 25 by 25 grid of the multi-feep so it's like the big engine and lots of them the primary goal that you have is is powering cubesats um, what are the potential applications for that many FEEP engines on, on one vehicle? Um, so on the website, it, it, I think uh, it's 10 by 10 modules. So it's uh, 100 uh, modules uh, that you're referring to. This product we called ESPA. So we, we named our products basically after the yeah, standardized sizes uh, of satellites. And the ESPA class, uh, ESPA spacecraft class, um, is in the um, range of uh, a few hundred kilograms. So the, the microsatellites basically, uh, the, the small satellites, um, which are yeah mainly on the market uh, for the mega constellations. So this was always our intention. We not only wanted to focus on the CubeSat market, but uh, basically the broadest range of satellite sizes as possible. If you think, for example, uh, of battery cells or solar cells, it's the same, uh, the same concept. Um, we try to make uh, one individual module as uh, efficient and as scalable as possible and then scale it up again. So basically only using multiple of, of these units um, to benefit of the, of the same high efficiency. Um, and also um, benefiting of economy of scale in the production. So the ESPA class, uh, the ESPA product is dedicated for ESPA satellites, so a few hundred kilograms, and we achieve uh, all the requirements that you would typically have on, on such missions. Um, and we have also the unique advantage that, um, yeah, if you take into account that we have, in, in that case, uh, 100 modules, um, and you shoot up uh, thousands of satellites in your mega constellation, um, you also have to take into account um, any failure rates. So if you have only one big uh, propulsion system on your satellite and you have uh, thousands of satellites, you will certainly lose satellites uh, just because of uh, the failure rate of the propulsion systems. If you have comparable or even worse uh, failure rates um, of our propulsion systems, you barely notice it. So if one uh, out of 100 propulsion system fails, uh, you have only a 1% decrease in performance, but you're still operational. So actually that brings up the question, have you been able to characterize the failure rate of uh, these engines? The failure rate of our propulsion systems is uh, in, in a typical range uh, of, of other propulsion systems. So uh, yeah, less than a percent. Um, and yeah, of course we, I don't like to talk about it because um, we don't have really a, um, a stochastical uh, um, base of, of uh, numbers that we um, produced and that we have in space still. So um, it's, yeah. yeah. So we, you need really a, a big number that you can uh, basically really tell you something accurate about the failure rate. But up to now, we, um, so we test every module that we ship. And uh, so for our customer side, the, the success rate is 100%. Uh, 
but we we lack of experience of course of uh, what happens in space over over the years um so that that's difficult to answer you just put that on its head and just say that the the reliability of the engines is very high <laughs> right yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so far none of them well yeah. and and yeah i mean if if the uh if the reliability of the data set like if your actual statistical significance is low because you've got a low n like it's not really a, a valid it's not a question that you can really answer in a valid way like yeah that's what uh, i mean yeah exactly yeah so, yeah yeah so cheap shot david uh, <laughs> i'm just kidding yeah. like i thought it was a very good question well, and i forgot that like yeah because well the question is have you been able to characterize it and so the short answer is no not yet i mean that's that's not very that's not a that's not a great answer though like <laughs> no nobody wants. uh even yeah. even though it's it, you know it's true for almost every single space system uh, mm -hmm. yeah so we're, we're not we're not trying to we're not trying to put you in the hot seat here okay um in lieu of having uh, a huge fleet of these engines uh on orbit like you do testing on the ground can you talk a little bit about what your testing facilities look like and and what your uh what your test procedures i don't know if i mean it's probably not a good uh, a good topic but like could you give us an idea of what it looks like to actually test one of these things yes so we like modularity as you as you see in our products so we are applying that in, in very different fields uh, also in our uh, testing uh, regime and uh, also production regime so we have these three uh, main components of our uh, propulsion modules so the thruster the neutralizer and the electronics and we are testing each of these three main components individually before we are basically mating them uh, together. Um, so first, uh, the, or not first, but the, it's, it's tested in parallel. Uh, so the propulsion systems are, uh, so the thrusters are um, uh, tested in uh, dedicated vacuum chambers uh, that have, um, that of course create the, the necessary uh, vacuum conditions and also have the necessary equipment uh, to make accurate measurements um, which is not that easy so um, people might not know that so we are expelling a um, metal ion beam and you have to capture that and of course you don't yeah have the budget to create a, a vacuum chamber that is uh, um, yeah has eternal dimensions um, so <laughs> you will always yeah. have uh, a chamber effect so um, this iron beam is basically reflected on, on the uh, chamber walls and uh, you have to suppress that so uh, we have um, for example it's called collectors so it's an iron beam dump basically um, mm -hmm. that suppresses the reflection of that iron beam um, to, to make uh, accurate measurements of, of the iron beam um, and then we have uh, dedicated facilities for the neutralizer um, uh, measurements. So that's a little bit different, but, but um, from the principle, it's the same. So there are then uh, electron beam dumps. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the chambers are also smaller because um, the plume uh, of, of the, or the electron beam is basically smaller. And um, on the third component, the electronics, um, we have an electronics uh, production side where we test each uh, single uh, PCP. Um, I said also in the electronics, we have a very uh, modular uh, electronics design. So 
I think in, in total it's about 10, 10 different uh, PCBs uh, that are tested uh, individually and automated. And um, uh, yeah, of course, only, only the successfully tested uh, electronic boards are then stacked together, together with the um, thruster and the neutralizer. And um, then uh, in that mated condition, uh, they are end-to-end -end tested again. Um, so the whole propulsion system operated throughout the whole operation uh, points. And yeah, then we have also uh, vibration tables uh, to make sure that our products met the vibration conditions of, of uh, all of the um, launchers. And yeah, the, the whole assembly is basically uh, happening under, under clean environment, uh, uh, like uh, typical um, yeah, space components are, are handled. What, what did you call it? An ion beam dump? Is that a is that a physical capture mechanism, or is there a charge involved? Like I, I have no idea what you would even what you would do. Yes. So yes to both. Um, oh, okay. So it's of course a physical. Uh, it's basically a big uh, recipient um, with also fins and so on um, to deflect the ion beam and to mitigate the reflection. And you can also apply electrical charges to that to that uh, dump to suppress uh, suppress uh, any secondary uh, effects. Um, so, what do I mean with that? Um, if you hit a material with a um, high energetic beam, uh, if it's an electron beam or ion beam, doesn't matter. Um, you can create a secondary electrons um, that are. Yeah, basically shot out of the material and mm. uh, which uh, yeah makes your measurement uh, um, inaccurate so you you are also applying uh, different voltages different potentials on um, on these um, ion or electron beams uh, beam dumps to um, suppress that these secondary effects and I, I know that you're no longer you're now using a proprietary alloy for your propellant but you used to use gallium and i'm just imagining like yeah uh, like a like an echo box uh full of like little tiny bits of gallium so just like this coating of gallium that's slowly building up is that like do you generate enough gallium in these test chambers or like a propellant that's being floated around that like you actually have to clean off your dump on occasion or, or is it just so little that you know you could run it for quite a long time without needing to worry about it um so we don't uh need to clean it um because the collector itself is also made of uh, conductive uh, material so we are using stainless steel for that mainly and yeah so it, it, it gets coated over time of course uh, especially if you run uh, the thrusters for a longer time you can see that also that uh, these these uh, ion beam dumps are also coated uh, with the propellant over time, um, but it's not something that um, doesn't matter for us. <laughs> Don't have to yeah. worry about. So it's a metal coated with a different other metal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Still metal. And then I, I thought it would be good to give you an opportunity to talk about another advantage of of this type of engine, which is that it's solid state. That's not something that everybody can say about their engine. Uh, yes. So the, the propellant is stored in solid state, and uh, which makes it really convenient um, because we don't have any pressure tanks. Uh, we don't have any moving parts in our propulsion system, actually. And um, it is also from, from the vibration conditions, of course, uh, very easy then. 
um, to withstand the launcher um, loads. The propellant is then melted when, when we want to operate it. And this is why we're using a low melting uh, propellant. Uh, you named gallium, so gallium has uh, a melting temperature of about 30 degrees Celsius. And um, our new propellant um, has also a very low um, melting temperature. And uh, because this energy is waste energy, we, we want to keep that as, as small as possible um, because that doesn't really uh, um, apply to the overall performance. Um, so we, we are also still using a low metal propellant. Um, why we changed it was because simply out of performance uh, reasons. So our new propellant basically enables us to have a, up to 50% uh, higher performance. So 50% higher thrust, thrust to uh, power uh, ratio. And uh, yeah, that was why we changed it. Uh, of course, it was not easy. We did a lot of research in that topic, but uh, yeah, could use uh, the, the same design, but only controlling it and, and also the uh, production processes we, we had to um, adapt. Uh, to make it work. That that's a fantastic improvement. That that's really crazy. Okay, so uh I guess we can start headed heading towards the end of the interview now, but before before we do that, uh I'd like to ask you about the the sphere ecosystem. You on your website you've like basically the entire website is built around this new ecosystem and um I think it's got really good, like, well, easy to market names, Go, Flow, Direct, Safe, and Gateway. Could you tell us about those? Yeah, of course. I, I would love to talk about that. Um, so we mainly focused uh, on one part of the ecosystem, on one element uh, so far, which are our propulsion systems. Um, and uh, these are the hardware uh, that enables um, moving around in space. But if, if you compare it, like if you buy a car, you can buy a great car, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can drive the car. Um, and that is what we realized over, over the years that uh, most of our customers don't have the expertise uh, to operate the, the propulsion systems and also do the uh, orbit, orbital mechanics and also to come or to get from, from one orbit to the other with their satellites. And this is why we we've creating uh, an autopilot this is direct so it's embedded in our propulsion system it's software embedded software that runs in our propulsion systems where uh, the customers only needs to specify their uh, um, designated orbit and the propulsion system is then uh, maneuvering on its own uh, using the data of the satellite uh, like the location and attitude data um, to fly there autonomously um, that is direct. And the next question then popped up basically at our uh, customers. Okay, I know now how to get to a different place, but what, what's the best different place? Uh, so where do I need to go? And this basically ignited our development of flow. And this is also extremely new concept of how we are dealing with orbital mechanics. So if you're honest, um, orbital mechanics haven't changed uh, since the uh, uh, 1960s, since the moon landing. Um, we are still applying the same uh, formulas uh, for orbital mechanics, and we are just using uh, a fraction of what is possible. And we are changing that by applying artificial intelligence 
and combining that with uh, fluid dynamics. So uh, we are basically changing how we come to solutions of how you can rearrange your whole satellite network, your whole constellation to um, address new mission objectives. So that's uh, very generally uh, um, described, but uh, maybe a, a short example illustrates it uh, a little bit better. So if you have a, a constellation, let's say, uh, of 100 satellites, uh, and you operate that and you want to be flexible um, on what is happening on ground. So you, either you're uh, observing weather phenomena or you want to provide services for agriculture, you want to um, be flexible on where the satellites are flying over at what time. And flow um, makes it possible to rearrange your satellite network so that you're for example, uh, increase revisit frequencies over certain areas and decrease uh, re revisit frequencies over other areas where you're not interested in at the moment. So you, we are basically creating uh, a new tool to make uh, constellations dynamic. And uh, that hasn't been done so far, and it's a really uh, difficult issue to solve, a problem to solve, because our orbital mechanics uh, uh, limit that. Uh, especially if you have hundreds of thousands of uh, individual satellites, you cannot uh, easily uh, calculate that uh, with the means we have today. Yeah, so that's that's really fascinating, I think. And uh, this is also our, our big goal, as I mentioned uh, in the beginning, that we want to make uh, space uh, as accessible as possible. Once the whole ecosystem is rolled out, uh, our customers can basically rearrange their whole uh, satellite constellation autonomously with just a click and point in our web application, uh, which is Gateway. These are the solutions on the uh, technical side, uh, but we also realize that uh, there are not only technical barriers uh, for our customers and for the industry itself, uh, we have also extremely high economical barriers. And this is why we also introduced uh, SAFE, which is the first hardware-as-a-service mechanism and platform that we introduced uh, to the space industry. And we are yeah, charging a really small upfront force, uh, cost in the orders of 25x lower than uh, other systems, um, and then uh, charge for the usage of our propulsion systems. So we make it possible uh, also for startups and uh, academia um, to get more propulsion systems on, on satellites because uh, they can afford it now and um, yeah make also a space more sustainable and um, also more yeah we, we bring it basically to the to the 21st century also the the business models um, that we're using uh, in space how exactly do you do hardware as a service like it isn't that basically just a financing program because like it's not like people are buying time um, on a communication satellite where once they're done, somebody else can use it. Once you deliver your engine, you can't utilize that engine anymore. So how, how does that work? Um, it works quite simple. So um, we ship our products um, after we, we get the, the very low upfront uh, cost, which is uh, only 1000 bucks per module. And that, that is unseen uh, in the space industry. And after that, um, you yeah basically have a subscription 
on uh, using the, prop uh, the propulsion systems uh, for a certain amount of time. So uh, our subscription lasts one year and you get a budget of how much you can use the propulsion system. And you can then uh, either uh, continue using this subscription or you can also buy uh, either individual maneuvers or uh, individual um, maneuvering potential basically um, that you can use up whenever you want. So we are really charging for the usage uh, for the consumption of the propulsion system. And that was, so the, the principle is uh, uh, very simple, uh, but the execution was uh, very, very difficult uh, to do, um, especially on yeah how you control basically that on the propulsion system, but also on the legal side and how how you make that work uh, for the customer in, in a seamless way. Um, so we put a lot of effort in that. And um, all is controllable then uh, over our gateway platform or web platform. And because we, we understood how difficult it was to work that out, uh, we want to uh, make that accessible uh, for the whole industry. So we are uh, opening that up for other subcomponent providers. Um, if it's uh, a company, for example, that uh, produces um, electricity, uh, energy, uh, energy power systems, uh, so batteries or, or, or solar cells, or if you're producing an antenna, uh, you can join us on, on our hardware as a service platform and, uh, yeah, benefit of, of all the, the work we've done. And so that we basically come to a point in the industry where you don't need these high, uh, capex, um, to get something into space that you only uh, have to basically pay for what, what you're using for in space. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. very different. <laughs> Never heard of that before. It's an innovative uh, way of doing it. Cool. Well, that was a very interesting discussion. Um, let's go ahead and wrap it up. So our penultimate question is, where would you like to be found on the internet? Um, yeah, please reach out uh, on our social uh, channels. Uh, so on LinkedIn, Twitter, and uh, also Facebook, uh, as well as on Instagram. And so we are happy if you follow us and shoot us an, uh, a message uh, to engage. Um, and yeah, we are looking very much forward to, to get in touch with you. Okay, and then our final question is a little game of overrated or underrated. Um, this is a quick fire list of products or concepts, and we'd like you to tell us if the world sees too much value in them, too little value in them, or, you know, in rare instances, if the world correctly values them. Are you ready to play? Okay. Okay, so first up, overrated or underrated vertical integration? Uh, my eyes overrated, or better said, so it's important, but I think uh, there are too many uh, companies focusing on that. Um, so we are um, pursuing a different way uh, at Morpheus Space, so we are more uh, horizontally um, um, integrated. So to yeah, create a high synergetic, um, holistic ecosystem. And uh, I think vertical integration makes only sense in, in a few examples because um, you cannot do everything uh, on its own at the best. And uh, I think it's much better if we cooperate in the industry much more and uh, that everyone is focusing on the on the topics that they can do best. Uh, so this is also uh, in this in the same corner, uh, but overrated, underrated COTS components. 
I think they are still underrated. Um, a lot changed uh, within the last 10 years. So uh, cords are applied more and more in the space industry. Um, but I think there's still room for improvement and we, we could uh, leverage uh, cords much more um, as we do until now. Overrated or underrated low thrust engines? Um, I would say, of course, underrated. And I think, <laughs> I think the, the main reason behind that is that it's not that easy to use. So orbital mechanics uh, regarding low thrust maneuvering is not that well studied and also most people are not that familiar with that. Um, so and this was also one reason why we we've created the autopilot uh, sphere direct. If you really know how to use it, uh, low uh, thrust uh, maneuvers are much more efficient and um, yeah, have unique benefits over uh, impulsive maneuvers. Okay, overrated or underrated? This one's a bit of a stretch. I, I don't. I could be getting myself in trouble here. Uh, overrated or underrated? Novelty spoons made out of gallium. Yeah, I, I would say it's it's overrated. I, I know the the videos. <laughs> uh, I think that's 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 videos you you find if you Google uh, um, gallium on on YouTube. Uh, so I, oh, I wouldn't yeah. drink my coffee uh, after that, to be honest. <laughs> no, I agree. All right. Uh, and finally, overrated or underrated dedicated ACS thrusters? I think it's underestimated. Up to now, ADCS, so attitude uh, determination control systems, are mostly separated from uh, propulsion systems and orbital control because nobody really combined them yet. In our autopilot, we are kind of combining them um, and we think that it makes more sense. However, you will also always have different uh, attitude control uh, techniques uh, depending on your mission. Um, and um, it, it doesn't make uh, always sense to use propulsion for attitude control um, if you have uh, other means uh, in, in your mission uh, that are more efficient. Uh, so one example is, for example, if you're in low Earth orbit um, and um, yeah, you don't have that high requirements on your attitude, uh, it's much easier to use magneto talkers basically mm. or, or reaction via. So it really depends uh, on your mission uh, profile. But on the data level, I would absolutely uh, integrate that um, so that you don't separate uh, attitude control from orbit control because um, it doesn't really make any sense. It just uh, was developed so uh, historically. All right. Well, this has been such a great hour and a half now. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and and uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. I uh, enjoyed it very much talking to you and uh, thanks a lot for having us on the show. Let's move on to uh, this week in spaceflight history. And Dennis, you're back, so you're doing this one. Yay! We have two winners. We have Leon Running Man and Serpolkowski, which means three pounds or three lumps in Polish, apparently. So great username and uh, a good guess, a correct guess. And you also wanted to give a shout-out to Peter McMally, who made a guess, but it was incorrect. It was for an event that we had previously covered, actually, way back in episode 106. Yeah, but yeah, so just yeah, shout-out to Peter McMally, since you still could have, you know, envisioned that being the, the 
the answer to the clue, right? Mm -hmm. Which was uh, the end of a dream to be chased by others. And so it was, you know, the dream of that South African space tourist. But but you'll see how uh, uh, this event is even more directly uh, tied to the clue because the end of a dream, this is the event is about a cancellation. <laughs> and so it was April 29th, 2002, and it was the cancellation of the X-38. And, uh, oh, I wanted to do a fun little uh, uh, game for everyone at home and <laughs> you guys. You want to take a guess what number X-plane we're up to now? Oh, geez. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I tend to think it's in the... I tend to think it's in the 80s because X80 something sounds like something I've heard recently, but I'm not confident at all. We are up to X62. Oh, six. So, okay. Yeah. So good job, Chris, in the chat getting a, you know, closest Ugh. number. <laughs> Every, everybody knows exactly the number that Chris put into the chat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this was the uh, X-38 was also known as the XCRV, which CRV is crew return vehicle uh and it was also known as the assured crew recovery vehicle because it was basically the x-plane that was going to fulfill this role and so what is the uh acrv it was an idea back when we were working on uh you know space station freedom and then ultimately the international space station to have a lifeboat on orbit um, and so, uh, Scott Manley has a great, uh, YouTube video where he talked about a lot of different types of, uh, lifeboat type, uh, concepts and, uh, vehicles that were developed, uh, to different extents. And the X-38 actually had quite a bit going for it. And, and in fact, uh, they, they built hardware, they tested it as I'll talk about, and it essentially got very close to completion before the cancellation happened. The, uh, there were some vehicles that were, uh, uh, built by Scaled Composites. They won the uh, contract for it. Uh, essentially, they were made of fiberglass and graphite composites, as you might have guessed, you know, given what Scaled Composites does. Yeah. And uh, reinforced by steel and aluminum at stress points. And the idea was essentially that there were some concerns about relying solely on Soyuz as a lifeboat. And so maybe you could come up with a different vehicle that would, uh, in addition to you know, not being a Soyuz <laughs> would be a uh, lifting body. So you could have lower G's as well as fit more people in there. So you can have six or seven people essentially into this. This was a space plane. Uh, it was about 8.7 meters long uh, or eight to 9,000 kilograms, depending on, you know, which variant uh, you were going to go with. And it would have a uh, three ton uh, deorbit propulsion module attached to it. And so the idea would be that the, uh, uh, the X-38 could just lounge around on orbit attached to the spacecraft. And then if there was an, a medical emergency or some, you know, catastrophic event happening and you had to basically get the crew out of station uh, ASAP, it would be there and ready to go uh, uh, nice and quick. This was kind of uh, good news uh, as opposed to usually when we talk about budgets in space, <laughs> it's things basically uh, uh, costing more and more and more. Uh, but in this case, um, you know, this was the 90s, and the X-38 was designed to be cheap um, and using pre-existing equipment. So the flight computer and flight software had already flown. Um, the inertial navigation system and GPS uh, was used on uh, contemporary Navy fighter jets. Um, a, uh, it would, you know, when it would re-enter, right, it's a lifting body, so it's the same principle as the shuttle, but it would have a... Uh, uh, a special coating on its uh, TPS tiles to make it even more robust, which, you know, uh, obviously is a very important thing um, when it comes to shuttles. 
And it turned out that rather than the $2 billion that something like this could have cost, uh, according to early estimates, uh, by doing it this uh, cheap using pre-existing equipment uh, approach uh, would only cost about half a billion dollars, so one-fourth as much. And so uh, the idea, because you don't know exactly what the state of the crew is going to be uh, during an emergency egress and return to Earth, um, would, have, would be to come up with a system that's fully automated. And so the attitude control system is uh, nitrogen gas, so long shelf life, right? You could just, you know, sit on station for a long time as opposed to, uh, right, it's uh, typically the hydrogen peroxide decomposing, right? That's what uh, limits the Soyuz mm -hmm. uh, uh, lifetimes, I know. So it's limited to, I think, what, six months on Soyuz, I think, um, before certain percentages vented or burned off or whatever. How long? I guess if it's nitrogen, it could just be for a very long time, huh? I'm assuming like geologic time scales, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. I think propulsion systems are inherently leakier to, than That's, than would be required for for that okay. long. But I mean, it's still not not that long. Yeah. No. I guess. Yeah. I see. I'm. I'm I was just thinking of the chemistry behind it. That you know, and nitrogen's just oh, an yeah. inert gas that isn't going to react yeah. with anything much. Um, nitrogen will be one of the last uh, one of the last things left in the universe when we're approaching heat death. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. But I see. But yeah, I could imagine there are. Uh, other realities to being on orbit, debris impacts, uh, outgassing uh, on the exterior of the vehicle, other things that might result in its short, in its uh, lifetime, not literally being, you know, 20 years. <laughs> right. But, you know, fair to say that the nitrogen would not be the limiting factor anymore. Ex exactly. Or the exactly. propellant would not. Yeah. Uh, in addition uh, to this, right, so this fully automated system would have about nine hours of uh, battery life to it once it leaves station and basically deorbits. And, um, you know, being a lifting body, so it, it looks like, you know, it's, it's like a mini shuttle, but it's got, uh, unlike shuttle, it doesn't have any wings. And so it, um, uh, it has two kind of uh, vertical flaps, uh, little winglets uh, towards the rear of the vehicle, and then that kind of blunt nose that you often see on these lifting bodies. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a cool little, cool little space plane. And uh, so that gives it a 1,300-kilometer cross range which is about Chicago to New York or uh, Paris to Budapest or Beijing to Shanghai. I uh, looked those up before the Damn. show. <laughs> no, like excellent way to not just say numbers, but also that's a, that's a lot of cross range. I mean, it's not, mm -hmm. you know, mm. you're not flying across the, across the globe with that, but like, that's really good when you need to pick a specific landing spot that opens your landing windows up hugely. That's the actual cross range capability and not necessarily the landing sites that say, I mean, like if they wanted to land there that it could make just because if you're like orbiting at 50, whatever it is, 50, what's the station? 58 something degrees, something, something like that. Mm. Then, you know, Chicago to New York is not as, they're not as distant from one another than if you were like, you know, like orbiting like in a polar orbit, if you get well, what I'm saying. Well, the, the key, the key is that since you're in this inclined orbit, you're passing over, your ground track is, is processing around the earth, right? And mm -hmm. so shuttle had to deorbit on a specific orbit in order to be able to land uh, at Kennedy or Edwards. And it had to wait until there was an orbit that got close enough. And then it had to deorbit on that orbit and not the next one and not the previous one. This cross-range capability, what it does is it, it gives your ground track some width, like all of the places where you could land instead of being in a, a very narrow band around your, your ground track, it widens that up. 
And so I don't know if this is symmetric or one-sided, but potentially if your ground track is flying over New York, you could divert and go to Chicago instead. And what's really great about that is that that's wider than the distance between each orbit that ISS does, I, I mm-hmm. believe. I believe the Earth rotates less than that. I think it's, I think it's comparable. Like, yeah, it's somewhere right. in the ballpark Close. of like 1,000 to 1,500. Yeah. Yeah. So you could potentially have three orbits in which you could deorbit and still get to your target and have that mm-hmm. abort capability, which, which is really crazy. I mean, like that's, that's a lot of movement. So, so, okay. So, right. So you got your, your, your crew of six or seven that climb into uh, the X-38 uh, where where they would actually climb in from the top, um, and then basically uh, from you know the perspective of of a plane, right? You know, up, down, left, right, kind of makes it's pretty unambiguous on a on a on an aircraft. And so you'd basically be laying down on your back, which is a kind of an interesting approach, right? You wouldn't be sitting in your seat like when you fly on a normal commercial airliner. Um, they would just kind of shove everybody <laughs> uh, into this you know space. Because um, right, remember, it's only uh, 8.7 meters long, and it's small enough to actually fit in a shuttle uh, payload bay. And so, yeah, so so then you to really try to uh, reduce the G-forces on you with this lifting body, uh, at uh, Mach 0.8, you would have a drogue chute deploy, and then at Mach 0.25, uh, a power wing would come out. And it uh, certainly at the time, I've been reading that it was the largest power wing ever. And it might still be. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we've had tremendous advances in the size of yeah, yeah. <laughs> implemented parawings. It's it's not really a, a record that's easy to break. And so, so this thing was was a very it was a beast. Now, now, like uh, when we talked about the X thirty three months ago, uh, unlike that one, this one actually had uh, things that were uh, or things that flew. I guess um, they actually did drop tests. And so it was really cool. Uh, they had three uh, vehicles built, uh, V-131, V-132, and V-131R. Um, they were all, you know, uncrewed in this case. And they were 80% scale relative to what the final product would be. And the first was delivered to Johnson uh, Space Center in September of 96, and the second in December of 96. In addition to these three, there was uh, another vehicle, V-201, that was partially built um, you can kind of see its shell, and this one is cool because this one would have been deployed from the space shuttle in 2002 on an actual orbital test, where it would you know see if it could make it all the way to the ground from orbit. Really, really cool. These drop tests that they were doing. I mean, some of the images are spectacular of them. The footage, uh, as Scott Manley put it, is uh, you know potato vision, as you can imagine. You know, 90s uh, wasn't always the sharpest, highest resolutions. Uh, footage that was taken, but some of the pictures are just incredible. And so some of the uh, the info, uh, before they even were dropping the X-38s themselves, uh, they did a bunch of tests on what were called space wedges, like space wedge one, space wedge two, and essentially it's a flattened biconic airframe. It just looks like a part of a, a spacecraft, or, or part of a space plane. And so some of these tests were done uh, also on just like pallets um, as well to, to make sure that the uh, parafoil uh, would uh, deploy correctly because it would actually do it in stages too, you know, being as massive and monolithic as it was. It couldn't just open up at once. And so the vehicle that flew it was the uh, the Dryden B-52 uh, serial number 0008. And so this uh, is actually a really cool B-52 uh, that had a lot of history behind it. And it actually was the oldest aircraft that NASA had 
at the time, as well as the oldest B-52 on flying status. Um, although I'm pretty sure it's uh, it's it's been retired and is actually uh, at the uh, at Edwards, back in your old stomping grounds, man, <laughs> uh, on display there. Yeah, I I think I've seen it on display, but they did the the drop tests out in uh, out at Edwards too, right? Like I don't think I I don't think I saw those. Oh yeah, yeah, there was a mix. So yeah, some of the the, the drop tests of the the X-38s themselves were all at Edwards. Uh, some of these other ones were done in Yuma and uh, possibly elsewhere. Um, cause yeah, when they were just testing the parafoil itself, but yeah. And so, yeah, there were, there were four flights in 97 and three in 1998, and then a bunch more in the next couple of years after that. And, uh, the, the final one was, uh, on March 30th, 2000. It was the longest one where vehicle V-132 was released at 39,000 feet. Uh, it flew freely for 45 seconds and, uh, hitting a top speed of over 500 miles per hour before it landed at, uh, Rogers dry lake bed, which is, uh, at Edwards, essentially. Wow. So so it went from 39,000 feet to ground in 45 seconds? Um, I'm thinking the 45 seconds might be before the um, the drogue deployed. Oh, That's okay, okay, okay. Yeah, I see that what you mean. Sense. Okay. Yeah. I was like, that's a steep descent then. <laughs> right, I was going to say, yeah, that's... <laughs> That's not what you would want if you had a potentially injured crew member on board. Uh, no. <laughs> floating on the air in exactly the way a brick doesn't. Or, in this case, exactly the way a brick does. And I, and I actually, I sorry, I, I had mentioned that, you know, this thing could have fit in a shuttle, but I don't think I really emphasized that the, the, the V-201 vehicle that was partially built that I mentioned earlier, that would have been deployed from a shuttle's cargo bay in orbit for that mission. I mean, just that's, I think that's really, really cool. <laughs> just trying to envision, mm -hmm. you know, the shuttle dropping out, you know, or deploying a mini shuttle essentially from its payload bay. It's, it's, it's inception of shuttles. Inception of shuttles. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, with, with, you know, if, if you have this vehicle and this capability, uh, it was also considered potentially in the future as its own vehicle, even though it was developed specifically, um, as this, uh, uh, crew recovery vehicle. You could have a version of it that maybe would have flown on an Ariane 5. Uh, but on April 29th, 2002, it was canceled uh, just as uh, uh, funding for, uh, you know, NASA and the ISS in particular kind of, and uh, it had lost some of that money. That was the end of the X-38. And so from the clue, it was the end of a dream. But that dream was chased by others because there was the HL-20, which was a similar uh, lifting body concept that was uh, canceled in the earlier, in, earlier in the 90s. Um, that HL-20 was ultimately the basis for Dream Chaser, which, of course, is being worked on today. Uh, we actually have a, a, a Dream Chaser in a good amount of uh, a good... It's, it's partially built, essentially, right? We, we actually can see Boy, uh, I, that. I hate how much... <laughs> How many qualifications we had to put on that one? Because it's really cool, <laughs> and I want it to fly. Yeah, it's funny because I remember it being partially built. I don't know over a decade ago at this point. It, it seems like back when SpaceX was like you know crashing first stages left and right, they were like working on this one uh, Dream Chaser that was still sitting in its construction bay. You know, just mm. in. It seems like it never moved from that spot, and then eventually you know lost out. And but it's coming back. But it's uh yeah. Yeah, lots of qualifiers. And so, uh, yeah, so that that was the clue there. You know that you know that if, if you if you looked at um, X thirty eight, it superficially does look similar to um, the Dream Chaser. So that is your event this week in spaceflight history. Well, that was a fun one, actually. Yeah, that was interesting, and we had and we got a little clarification on cross range. <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> That's like the thing about these vehicles is that they do have you know 
such incredible cross-range capability. That's something that, yeah, nothing today going now has, huh? Yeah. So it'll be cool when it does fly or when Dream Chaser flies. Right. Moving on to next week's clue. Uh, ben, you have this one in the date range. It is the 3rd through the 9th of May. And what is the clue? All right. It's uh, next week in 1997. More tinfoil. So more tinfoil, that's your clue. And if you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Let's do upcoming space flight events. We have six launches this week, actually, quite a few, and like half of them are on Wednesday. So what's the first Wednesday launch? <laughs> right. Well, so this one this one's pretty crazy. I don't I don't know if we've seen this before. So this is gonna be uh, Long March eleven flying G Lean one, uh HR zero three D four through nine as well as zero four a so like a bunch of satellites i think this is a not military but a commercial remote sensing that almost certainly funnels uh data to the military uh mm -hmm. excuse my cynicism um and before i mention the time i'm going to mention the launch location because this is really cool it's getting launched from the ocean this is apparently going to be a sea launch uh which is which is really cool uh it's it's been a long time since we've launched anything from the ocean i have no clue if this is going to be um live streamed anywhere i kind of doubt it but hopefully we'll get to see uh photos and video and hopefully we'll be talking about it next week um and not saying that there's a new crater in the ocean surface <laughs> um, but this uh this sea launch is going to be happening Wednesday April the 27th and we have a window from 0319 UTC to 0434 UTC and i believe that's actually a launch window and not just the NOTAM uh period i just looked it up uh apparently they launched this uh, long march 11 from sea in 2019 and 2020. Oh, really? Yeah. Boy, I have not been paying enough attention. I, I missed it too. So <laughs> we all missed them. And then after that, on the same day, we have a Falcon 9 launch of Crew 4, and that's provided uh, that the Axiom 1 crew comes back later on tonight, uh, and that's as of recording. So I guess you know before we do, in a sense. <laughs> um, so that will be lifting off at 3.52 a.m. Uh, in that Eastern time, or 07. 52 UTC, and that'll be launching from Launch Complex 39A at the Kennedy Space Center. So uh, this will be carrying astronauts Kiel Lindgren, Robert Hines, Jessica Watkins, and European Space Agency astronaut Samantha Christopheretti. So good luck to them, and uh, I, I hope things go according to schedule, providing hoping that right. the Florida weather works out, which half the time it doesn't. It. Yeah, you know how Florida is. And then rounding out our Wednesday is a uh, an electron launch. And so this is Rocket Lab's Electron, the there and back again mission. And right, this one is really exciting, even though the payloads are cool, right? It's commercial rideshare. Uh, what's really exciting is this will be the first attempted recovery uh, with getting the booster, the first stage, uh, with the uh, helicopter uh, snagging the parachute. And so this, again, is on Wednesday, April 27th, with a window from 2130 to 2300 ETC. And we'll be flying out of their launch complex in the, the Mahia Peninsula, New Zealand. And then after that, we have a Russian spacewalk coming up. Uh, so this is Spacewalk 53. That's going to be uh, Artemyev and Matyev. Matvyev. That first V gets me. Um, <laughs> so this this is going to be happening on April 28th, uh, which is Thursday. 
Um, coverage is going to begin on NASA TV at 10 a.m. Eastern time. The spacewalk is scheduled to begin at 10.30 a.m. Eastern time, and uh, they're planning for at least six and a half hours worth of spacewalking. And, and Dennis, you said they're going to be doing some work on the European robotic arm. Yeah, yeah. That's really, uh, really cool. We might actually get to see it moving for the first time. Um, they're going to basically uh, work towards kitting it out and getting it ready to be operational. And yeah, it might have its first movements during the spacewalk. Hmm. Very cool. Worth watching. And it's during the day for me. So like, <laughs> it's always a plus. So then after that, on the 29th, we have the launch of a Falcon 9 Block 5, and that's launching Starlink Group uh, 4-16. This will be lifting off at 2133 UTC from Slick 40. So, yep, just another batch of 53 satellites for the Starlink Mega Constellation. Uh, yeah, we do one or two of those every week, it seems. And then finally, uh, on Sunday, May 1st, we have an Angara launch. It's tough to say an Angara launch, but yeah, the Angara uh, 1.2 rocket. Uh, may be flying, and it would be taking the MKAR, which is a Russian military radar satellite. And this launch is scheduled for 1930 UTC on May 1st, uh, launching out of Plusinsk. Alrighty, those are your upcoming space flight events. All six of those launches. All right, and with that, let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jakies and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make the Wrecking Birds on the fly. And a special shout out to Colin, Chris, Mike, Leon, Running Man, The Greek, and BT for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes, and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit, where Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at All right, that's it. We'll see you next time on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.